Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is how to recognize and cope with obsessive compulsive disorder. My guest is Professor Christine Lochner, clinical psychologist and researcher at an extramural research unit of the Medical Research Council at the Universities of Stellenbosch and Cape Town. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much, Mariette. Just to inform our listeners, after our conversation, Christine will give us her three best tips on life, love, and everything else. And then it will be fun question time. Christine, most people know the term OCD and many like to crack jokes about it, but I'm not sure we're all on the same page when we talk about obsessive-compulsive disorder. First, could you tell us how common is OCD? We estimate that the lifetime prevalence uh, of OCD is about 2.5%, you know, somewhere between 2 and 3%. So we know it is actually a very common condition. And we know that subclinical OCD, in other words, you know, OCD that is uh, similar to full-blown OCD, but which is less, uh, less severe, less distressing, it's actually much more prevalent. So if we look at the South African population of about 60 million people, we know that if there's a prevalence of about 2%, we say that 1.2 million people in South Africa will have a diagnosis of OCD. Yes, that's very common. And then uh, how would you define OCD? It is a psychiatric condition and it's characterized, you know, as you can uh, uh, get from its name, it's characterized by obsessions and compulsions. And uh, just to provide you with a description of those, obsessions are recurrent and persistent thoughts, impulses or images that the person feel they are unable to control or to prevent. And they're usually experienced as, as quite senseless and it's disturbing and, and it's very intrusive. And people uh, with OCD try, mostly unsuccessfully so, to ignore these uh, uh, thoughts or images or to suppress them. And uh, these obsessions are then often accompanied by much anxiety or fear, um, disgust and, and doubt. And then the compulsion part is, is you, you will know them as the repetitive or ritualistic behavior uh, or mental acts that are performed according to certain rules or as an attempt to reduce the distress caused by the obsessions. So, so compulsions are not inherently enjoyable. Um, we, we, we call this, uh, in scientific terms, we say they're ego-dystonic. You know, they're not congruent to what we like and what we are about. And they don't result in the completion of useful tasks. So people very often, you know, there's this myth 
that people who are um, very keen on organizing and, and keeping things neat, that they are so OCD. Now, I can tell you they're so not OCD mm. because they actually enjoy cleaning and enjoy uh, uh, tidying up and making things organized. You know, It's only when you feel you have to do those things, it suck up loads of time, and it's actually uh, it bothers you tremendously. Then we talk about... OCD. So if you have these obsessions and compulsions and they cause you marked distress and they persist and they take up a lot of time, you know, a lot of time is, is, uh, it's, it's not uh, easy to understand, but it's generally we say if they take more than an hour a day and if they significantly interfere with your normal routine and your work and your relationships, then we talk about OCD. So if you're a layman and you want to look at it from a practical point of view, mm -hmm. what, which signs or symptoms would you see? So examples of the most common obsessions are uh, worrying excessively about dirt or germs. That's a typical one that we see on TV or that people talk about, you know, people obsessing about dirt or germs uh, or getting ill or being contaminated uh, or the fear of contaminating others. That's a very common uh, type of OCD. And then some people would have obsessions uh, or intrusive thoughts about harming others or harming themselves. You know, so they have lots of doubts about safety issues, you know, such as whether you've turned off the stove or whether you left the garage open or not. Mm. And then some people would have uh, intrusive thoughts that something terrible might happen. You know, if they don't check all the plugs before they go out, you know, a fire might happen or uh, others have preoccupations with symmetry and neatness or the need to have things just so otherwise something bad might happen or they just don't feel right and other people might have uh, uh, intrusive sexual thoughts you know absolutely abhorrent or disgusting sexual thoughts or even religious thoughts, you know, intrusive thoughts about religion or about God or, or praying, that type of thing. So these would be very common examples of obsessions. And then uh, um, the compulsions or the rituals uh, that you often see in people with OCD is the repetitive washing or cleaning of surfaces you know, like showering repeatedly or washing your hands until the skin is red and they're bleeding. Um, checking is another very common compulsion. Checking uh, whether you've uh, switched off the stove, whether you've closed the house, whether you switched off all the plugs. Um, repeating, such as repeating a name or a phrase many times in your head or uh, even counting things over and over until you feel better. Um, other people might have repetitive ordering, counting, arranging. I've, I've mentioned the counting, arranging things, you know, to obtain symmetry or maybe to obtain a specific order. Or some people order to prevent bad things from happening. So the motivation is not always the same, even though the behavior might be the same. And then other people might have uh, collecting, you know, excessive mm -hmm. collecting and hoarding. Others would have excessive or repetitive praying or reassurance seeking. And others would have interesting things like repetitive touching, you know, feeling the urge that you have to 
touch a certain object so many times or in a certain way and only then you feel better. So as you can hear, OCD can be quite heterogeneous. You know, we in the, in the 20 plus years that I've seen people with OCD, um, I've always been astounded at, at the heterogeneity of these uh, uh, potential symptoms that people present with. And, and they all have the same diagnosis, but the clinical picture can differ uh, uh, widely. Yes, and as you said, they are all unpleasant. Indeed. Mm. Do we know what causes this condition? Mariet, I think... That is probably the most important question that we're dealing with in research, for example. You know, we know that it is definitely multifactorial. It's not only one thing causing uh, uh, the condition. Um, firstly, a lot of people would know that there is a genetic component. Uh, twin and family studies have shown that people with first-degree first relatives, such as a parent or a sibling or a child who have OCD, they're at higher risk for developing OCD themselves. So the risk is higher in, in first-degree relatives. Um, but even if your Oma and Opa had it, you, you know, you have a slightly increased risk of it, but that doesn't mean that you will have it, obviously. So, so it's not only genetic. There is, uh, there would be other factors that also play a role. We know that the brain, the brains of people, uh, brain structure and uh, brain functioning, um, of people with OCD would be different from people, uh, who don't don't have it, you know, obviously in certain areas. So imaging studies have shown that there are differences in the frontal cortex and the subcortical structures of the brain um, in patients with OCD in comparison to, to, to healthy controls. Mm. And then, you know, there are chemicals in the brain. For example, people would recognize the name serotonin or dopamine or glutamate. You know, all of these chemicals, um, some of them are known as neurotransmitters. They pl also play a role in, in, in OCD. And that is why, uh, uh, you know, once we talk about treatment, you will know that some people respond to serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the name of a, a medication. Um, so, so they work on the serotonin. It's actually confirmed that serotonin play, plays a role in OCD because we know the SR, SRIs or serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they work to reduce the symptoms. And then we also know uh, environment can play a factor. You know, some people who've been exposed to trauma uh, may be more prone to development of OCD. And even immunological factors may play a role. You know, if you've had a what they call pandas in childhood, uh, it's a pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strep throat. You know, some kids uh, in childhood, when they've had one of these conditions, they may also suddenly develop OCD. And then hormones may also play a role. You know, certain times of the month, uh, 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 women may be more prone to experiencing OCD symptoms or even w during pregnancy or shortly after, people may develop pregnancy uh, de novo, you know, out of scratch. Um, and then there's the X factor. You know, there may be other things that, that uh, play a role in the development of OCD. So you can see it's clearly it's, it's, it's multifactorial and it's, it's, it's hard 
often to find the exact cause. I think it would be virtually impossible to, to tease out the exact cause. It's likely a combination of things. And you must remember that sometimes we have protective factors, you know, parents that are super supportive or, um, yeah, there are certain factors that would protect you against developing the condition, even though you have a, maybe a higher genetic load or, or something like that. Yes, what, what I hear you saying is that this is a real illness. And I think people who have it may sometimes feel that they are at fault for having it. But I mean, you've just shown that it really comes from a lot of causes and science is on top, getting on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Christine, how is it diagnosed? Right. That is a good question. You know, we don't have, uh, for example, when you go and see your GP, they have certain tests. They send you to, you know, they draw bloods. Your bloods are sent to PathCare and they, if they pick up certain markers or, or certain levels of, of a particular chemical, they can diagnose you with, with COVID, for example. Um, but with OCD, we don't have that. We don't draw bloods. We don't take saliva. How we do uh, uh, diagnose the condition is by conducting a comprehensive uh, interview where we ask very specific questions to determine whether you do have these obsessions, whether you do have compulsions. You don't have to have both. I wanted to say that as well. You could have either or or both uh, obsessions and compulsions. So the diagnosis is done by a comprehensive uh, interview that is usually being done by a general practitioner or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And, uh, you know, we do have nurses that also uh, specialize in psychiatry. We call them psychiatric nurses. And they can also make a valid diagnosis of OCD. So it would be a structured uh, clinical interview. And through that, you are able to, to make a diagnosis. But keep in mind, it's OCD is one of those very interesting conditions. And it is sometimes quite challenging to make an accurate diagnosis because very often um, you have symptoms that overlap with other conditions. For example, depression, you know, the, 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 the intrusive ruminations that you often see in depression, you also see in OCD. And the excessive anxiety that you find in generalized anxiety uh, are quite reminiscent of the anxiety that you experience when you when you have OCD. So you can see that there's, it sounds very simple, but so, sometimes making uh, 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 an accurate diagnosis of OCD, it can be quite challenging. So perhaps the point is that, that if you think that might be something that you suffer of, you must try to get help. Correct. And... Is it a bad thing, in inverted commas, to have OCD? I can see why you asked this question, because a lot of people will say, well, I see you clean like four hours a day. Why don't you come to my place, <laughs> you know? you know, uh, help me out. Uh, and, and they see OCD as a positive thing. But actually, it is a very stressful condition that can become chronic, um, if not treated. And it's associated with, 
with firstly the distress and the uh, um, the time that goes into it, you know, and the functional impairment uh, that goes into it, those are all bad things, not only to my uh, knowledge, but I think to every person um, would see this as, as a bad thing. And then also OCD is associated with the development of depression and, and other anxiety disorders, and people with OCD do have a higher risk of suicide. So clearly OCD affects the person and everything and often everyone in their life. Christine, is there a positive side to the condition? I suppose this would be a good question to ask someone with OCD. Um, but from my perspective, the joint journey from the development of the symptoms to diagnosis and treatment, those things may strengthen the bond between family members or between parents and children as they support one another in dealing with it. So to have the symptoms diagnosed correctly and to receive evidence-based treatment are positive. So, the, um, But then this is not unique to OCD, but it applies to any other condition. So there may be positive uh, uh, sides to this condition, but it's probably not unique to OCD. Yes. So when do you know that it, re it requires treatment? Untreated OCD has been associated with increased functional impairment and poorer quality of life, worse prognosis and increased symptom severity, uh, the development of comorbid, uh, comorbidity, you know, your development of other conditions like depression or anxiety. And then there can also be hospitalization, increased depletion of financial resources, and even suicide. So the symptoms of OCD can progress to the point that the person's life becomes consumed, you know, in inhibiting their ability to attend school or keep a job and or maintain important and significant relationships. So, so sadly, I wanted to say that uh, uh, with emphasis, is that there's much evidence to suggest that OCD is commonly un- or undertreated. So I'd say that OCD symptoms needs treatment when there's distress or functional impairment, for example, struggling to concentrate due to intrusive thoughts or having to do rituals that interferes with functioning and, for example, with the completion of tasks or even hobbies, you know, like watching TV or reading books. You know, when you experience that kind of distress or impairment, I would say OCD requires treatment. So parents should also be on the lookout uh, regarding their children. Absolutely. You know, parents are the first ones to notice uh, if their child is experiencing distress or becoming unhappy or withdrawn or spends a lot of time doing maybe not so constructive things like spending hours to tidy up their rooms, you know, like two hours uh, tidying up or tidying their desk, you know, that is obviously uh, excessive. Or they spend more than an hour in the bathroom uh, cleaning or washing, or their hands are all of a sudden quite red and, and, and sore uh, or bleeding even, you know, those those are signs or 
signs that people have to be aware of, and it can be indicative of, of a case of OCD. And if it needs to be treated, how is it usually done? Well, I think the first step is to recognize it. So that that would be your, your very first step. Parents have to be vigilant or teachers can even be vigilant, um, spotting those kinds of symptoms that affect a child's ability to concentrate in class. Um, so th the general consensus is that optimal treatment entails a type of therapy um, that we call cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. And this type of CBT consists very uh, specifically of exposure and response prevention. In other words, exposure to things that create anxiety or intrusive thoughts. And then the person uh, must not engage in those uh, compulsions so that they learn, they learn that the OCD or the, the anxiety actually lessens uh, if they do not engage in those rituals. And then, okay, that's the one side of the treatment is the CBT. And then the other side is the medication part. And we use a type of medication called um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SRIs. And um, these medications have been found to be safe and effective first-line treatments for OCD. So a lot of people ask me, well, won't I become addicted? No, this is not a medication where you need more of the drug in order to get the same effect like you would have with other drugs or substances. It's, 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 it's not how it's formulated. So the combined treatment, uh, the CBT with uh, SRI, with an SRI is usually considered for people who are uh, not responding to CBT on its own. So, so in my book, you should probably start with CBT on its own. If you have mild OCD or it's just been diagnosed, CBT is probably your first step. And if the OCD is moderate or severe, then you should add the medication. And, um, you know, the combined combination is, is, is your best bet. Could you please give us an example of this, of CBT, an example of a compulsion that would be addressed by this? Yeah, um, that is, a, that is a very good question because I think there are lots of myths out there. You know, some people even avoid seeing a psychologist for uh, exposure and response prevention because they're so fearful. They're fearful uh, to be exposed to those things that they fear the most. So, for example, someone with contamination fears and fears of germs and dirt and with compulsions of cleaning and washing and uh, avoidance uh, of touching things that they believe to be dirty. You know, in therapy, such a person would be gradually exposed to things uh, that they believe to be dirty or uh, full of germs, like they are asked to touch uh, the therapist's pencil, you mm -hmm. know, or uh, the doorknob. Um, but it would not be the worst thing ever. You know, they would start out with exposure to, to a stimulus that is uh, slightly anxiety 
thought-provoking. And then they are instructed not to go and wash immediately. You know, they're instructed to sit with the uncomfortable feeling until that uncomfortable feeling sort of dissipates, until it gets less. So the person in therapy learns that they do not have to uh, engage in washing or wiping or washing with alcohol or dental or whatever it is, you know, whatever they use to clean their hands. And and this is what we call desensitization. It's a gradual exposure exercise and uh, so the person gets better over time. You know, this uh, OCD usually do not develop uh, suddenly. So, so the treatment, it does take time. Um, and you need to see a psychologist uh, or a clinician with OCD expertise. You have to remember that psychologists will try. You know, if you come, if you go to any psychologist, they're not necessarily all trained to deal with OCD. They do not all have OCD expertise, you know, treatment expertise. So, so you need to find a therapist who is known for his or her work in OCD. So as you can hear, there's definite techniques that are, that are used. It's not as if you lie on someone's couch and free associate the whole hour. It's, it's, it's very hands-on. It's very practical. Um, you are often expected to keep a diary and to report back to your clinician. So it's, it's a very involved, intense form of therapy. Yes, and you do that in a, in a supported and safe environment. Absolutely. So I think it could be quite a relief to learn to be less anxious in this specific way. Yeah, and also to trust someone who who obviously knows their stuff, you know, and make you feel or make you realize that you're not the only person, that you're not weird, that you're not, uh, you know, very often people are made fun of or they feel like they're the only person in the whole wide world with these kinds of symptoms and behaviors. And in therapy, you learn that that is definitely not the case, you know, that Many people struggle with this and you are engaging in a type of therapy that has worked for others, you know, that worked in, in, in reducing symptoms of OCD. Yeah, and feeling weird, that leads directly to my next question, which is how can we lessen the stigma attached to OCD? Yeah, I, you know, the way I see stigma... I think it has two angles, you know. Um, there is firstly the stigma that is created by other people. Um, we know that society often label people with these kinds of thoughts and behaviors as strange or weird or different, and they they distance themselves because they don't know what the condition is or that there's actually a neurobiological reason for it and that there's treatment for it. And then on the other hand, there's something which we can call self-stigma, you know, where the person with OCD internalizes the opinions of other people. And, and that is also challenging. And, and, and it often prevents this person from participating in friendships and, and daily life activities because they feel weird, because they feel they stand out. So, you know, reducing uh, the stigmatizing uh, attitudes and behaviors in society is probably at least as important as treatment. You know, adequate and fair media coverage can significantly reduce the stigmatization of individuals with, with OCD. And then uh, the public 
also needs to be educated. You know, educational approaches to the dangers uh, can challenge false stereotypes and myths about mental illnesses such as OCD and change them to real knowledge. So, so education um, is, is very important and it includes challenging those myths and, and false stereotypes. Yeah, someone once, someone once gave me a little advice and said, if there's someone that you want to understand what you are struggling with, it's a good idea to say, oh, I've just listened to this podcast on this topic. And Correct. that's an easy way for someone to get their loved ones on, on the same page. Absolutely. Now, Christine, I'm fascinated by an international study you're involved with, which is called the Global OCD International Multisite Study. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, this is a lovely project, uh, even if I have to say so. Um, and it has been ongoing since 2018. And the project will end, well, the funding will end middle of 2022. And, um, you know, even though it has been three years coming, we, we're still thankful and terribly excited about this first international NIH-funded uh, project on OCD ever. You know, this is the first time that the National Institutes of Health in the USA have funded um, uh, a, a project on, on OCD. And as you said, it is a global project aimed at identifying the multiple brain networks um, that play a role in OCD. And what is what is really cool about this is that we use standardized methods across five sites. So we have five sites, one here in Cape Town, and then the others are in New York, Amsterdam, uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, and uh, Bangalore in, in India. So it's uh, three first world countries and then two um, developing countries that are involved. And I mentioned the fact that we use standardized methods. This is actually the first time that, that you have this uh, large-scale project using the same laptop, um, using the same imaging, you know, we do MRI, so we use exactly the same imaging sequences at all five sites. The goal of this study is to examine how the brains of patients with OCD differ from the brains of healthy volunteers, and uh, knowing this with reliable methods may help us to get to specific personalized treatments. So, so you may well ask, what does the participation entail? It sounds like a lot of uh, different angles, and definitely it is. You know, there's a clinical uh, uh, interview consisting of uh, diagnostic uh, scales and questionnaires that the person uh, answers, and then there we also have behavioral tasks on, a, on a, uh, a computer to measure how people think and process information. Then there's a MRI scan, a brain scan that the person undergo. And then we also uh, do a follow-up interview about 12 months after the MRI scan to see what has happened during this past year. So, you know, that would be the basics. And then we have uh, recently added a, a treatment component, but this is optimal. 
So we are inviting people with OCD, whether they've been diagnosed or not, uh, they can come along and, and we do a diagnostic interview to confirm the diagnosis and we decide whether they actually fit our inclusion criteria. And uh, we are keen on involving people with OCD and then siblings, in other words, brothers or sisters, whether they're full brothers or half-brothers, full or half-sisters, and we also invite uh, healthy controls to take part. And uh, so anyone can take part who's got OCD or a suspicion of OCD, and they must be between the ages of 18 and, and 50 years. They, uh, and they should not be on any psychiatric medication for at least uh, six weeks before participation. So uh, the question can be raised, who cannot participate? It's anyone with any physical or neurological illness like uh, epilepsy or tics or Tourette's syndrome, which we sometimes find in people with OCD, so they are excluded, but then also people with metal prosthesis or pacemakers, anything that would uh, uh, be a hindrance or, or a problem in the scanner, those people can also not take part. And then obviously people who are claustrophobic uh, and who cannot tolerate being in a scanner, they can also not take part. So, so this is a lovely global study with different from different perspectives uh, to see how the brains of people with OCD work in comparison to people without OCD or to siblings of people with OCD. Now does this take place online or do you for instance need people only from the Cape Town region? Mariette, that is an excellent question, uh, especially if this podcast, you know, it's, it's published and people from all over can listen to it. Um, because we only have a site in Cape Town, um, thus far most of our participants were from the Cape Town region, but we've also had people travel from uh, Joburg and Pretoria to take part. So, you know, if you know that you have OCD and you fit the inclusion criteria and you travel to Cape Town every now and then, you know, please make contact. We can always do the screening interview, um, you know, online uh, via Zoom. And uh, based on our impressions and our decisions, whether you fit or not fit the inclusion criteria, we can, we can make a plan to see you uh, in Cape Town. And if you want to participate and you have siblings who are not interested, would that be a problem? That's not a problem. Uh, most people, I don't know how it is, but uh, many people with OCD, they take part and their siblings are willing to come in. But not all siblings are available. Not all siblings know about their, you know, the diagnosis of, of OCD of their family member. So in those cases, it would not be an exclusion criterion. Uh, not at all. So you can take part even if no one in your family knows about your diagnosis or, or even if no one wants to take part. And apart from advancing science, uh, what would the advantages be for the people who take part? It's a really good question. You know, my experience with, with people that take part in, in research, I think irrespective of what your diagnosis is, people take part and afterwards they feel good. Firstly, they make a contribution towards science 
And secondly, a lot of people that we see um, have not yet been uh, formally diagnosed. So this is a chance to be diagnosed by a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist with OCD expertise. So you provide them with knowledge, you establish or you confirm a diagnosis or you either give them another diagnosis which is more appropriate or more accurate and you also discussed during uh, this interview we discuss treatment options so they can either take part in in this optional treatment leg of the study or you refer them out to you know to a psychologist in their area or uh, anyone that you deem uh, or that the clinician deem uh, would be appropriate to assist. Um, so, so it's actually a, an opportunity to spend time. You know, obviously when you're in practice or you go and see a psychologist or a psychiatrist in practice, time is money. Here you take part, it is cost-free. Um, you don't pay to be evaluated. You don't pay for the referral service or the or the knowledge. But you do. I think most people find it uh, constructive. And um, you know, if in the end you decide this, if the person with OCD decides to take part uh, in in our treatment leg, it's also to their benefit because the medication. Uh, we use sertraline, which is on the market for OCD. So it's not as if we test the medication. We're actually interested in, in your brain's reaction to this medication. So we scan at, uh, at baseline and then again after 12 weeks of treatment. So we provide the treatment at no, no cost. All follow-ups by a psychiatrist is, is cost-free. So it's, um, it's actually to the participants' benefit, all the process, even if they don't take part in the, in the treatment leg of the study. That certainly sounds like an advantage uh, if you want to up your quality of life. I do think so, you know, and, and even just, even if it's a short-term commitment, you know, that you go and you get diagnosed and you know what options are available, to me that is, that is obviously to your benefit. Even if you don't pursue any of the uh, recommendations, you know, at least you will know what your diagnosis is and that you've seen someone with expertise on, on OCD. And you can have all your questions answered. I mean, to me, this is, this is to your benefit. But, um, you know, people differ. And, and sometimes people are not yet ready to talk about their OCD or they're not ready to discuss treatment. And, uh, and that is, you know, I can, I can respect that. And I've, I've had participants contact me after three or four years after I've seen them for their baseline interview, you know, asking about what are the options. They're now ready, um, you know, whether they have the income or the uh, medical aid or they're just psychologically ready to, to tackle it. Yes, and I think that gives people an indication of the respect with which this is handled. I hope so. Mm-hmm. If anyone is interested, Christine, where can they find more information? We've got a, a, a lovely website that explains this project. Uh, it's called global-ocd.org. 
You can go and Google that. And we're also on Facebook at OCDRSA, which stands for OCD Research South Africa. So it's easy to remember, OCDRSA. Or they can email us on OCDRSA at SUN, which stands for Stellenbosch University, .ac.za. I will attach the the address of the Global OCD Multisite Study. I will attach that to the podcast. Fantastic. Thank you, Marie. And now I'm looking forward to your three best tips on life, love, and everything else. <laughs> Marie, uh, you caused me a sleepless night to come up with this. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And initially, I thought I would I would keep this to a focus on OCD because we've spoken about it at length and and to make it a little bit more fun and interesting. And and I thought I would mention you know being obsessed with something doesn't mean you have OCD. You know you could be obsessed with a, a certain boy or a, a perfume or obsessed with a TV program or a movie, but that doesn't mean you've got OCD. But that is not that doesn't capture one of my three best tips so i'm gonna go over to my second choice um your question on your my fun tips um i am someone who love staying active physically active um and i i like nike's uh logo where they say just do it you know, just do it as best as you can. Uh, I just love this logo. Just do it. If you think about going out for a walk or for a jog this afternoon or for starting to take up boxing lessons or pottery lessons, what it is, whatever it is, just do it. You know, some people just take too long to think about it. That's my first tip. Um, so if you can, stay active. Second one is be nice to yourself, you know, especially during times like we're experiencing now. Take time out, take leave. You know, holiday is not a luxury. It is essential for mental health. So be nice to yourself. That's my second tip. And the third one is, but don't be too nice, you know. Oh. <laughs> don't be too nice. Just get up and do your work. You know, in, in Cape Town, uh, the sun comes up at, at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's hard to get up. It's cold. It's raining. It's dark. But get up. Go to gym. Uh, face your fears. Seek treatment. Don't be too nice and rest in peace. You know, get up and do something about your situation. Get up, do your work, get up, go to gym, even if it's cold or dark, face your fears, seek treatment, seek more information. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> and now it's time for your fun question. Oh, good grief. <laughs> Can I ask you a fun question? You're welcome. <laughs> Marie, what is the weirdest topic you've ever written about and why? Hmm... I think having grown up as a very good Afrikaans girl, I was asked to do a podcast series about two years ago at the Roy Rosa magazine where I worked. Yeah. And the first topic we tackled was sexual health. So although it is not a weird topic, 
it really took me out of my comfort zone. But I must say that the, per- the people I interviewed were so at home with what they do and what they tell others about that <laughs> in the end, yeah, I, re- I survived. I can say I did survive. And you probably learned a lot of things. <laughs> oh, certainly, yes. <laughs> okay, your turn. Now you can ask me. So, in my question, we're entering the realm of the imagination. So when you answer, Christine, you needn't stick to any practical considerations. Okay. Now, you are the, mothers of, the mother of twins, right? Correct. And if you were asked to invent the ideal handbag for the mum of twins, what would you be thinking of? <laughs> oh, my word. Well, okay. It's actually quite simple. My, my, the twins are eight years old and they're constantly hungry. So <laughs> the first requirement would be it's got to be a big one. It's got to be a big one because... Firstly, there's my stuff, is, is, uh, my wallet and my cell phone and my keys and uh, a notebook and the lipstick and the ID. Um, those are essential. But then the twins, they come and they also have their little wallets. They, and it, obviously, it, go, it goes into my handbag. And there's got to be snacks. You know, you have to be prepared because... Uh, Within 10 minutes after leaving the house, they will be hungry. So there's got to be space for cookies and chips. And uh, and then they will be thirsty. So there's got to be, on the sides, there's got to be those longish uh, bags where you put in uh, juice or uh, whatever cool drink. And it's got to be, uh, it's got to have a long, it's got to have a long sling because you have to have your hands free to uh, to hold their hands because they're quite impulsive. So they will run over the, they will cross the street without looking. So you have to hold their hands when you do that, or you have to pull them out of certain shops. So <laughs> the, the, the handbag's got to have a long sling so that I can wear it over my shoulder. Um, and it has, it can't be pink because my daughter hates pink. So it's likely to be <laughs> more neutral. Um, and that is, uh, you know, Mariette, I think that's a mouthful. So far, so good. Yes, it sounds to me like you might actually be speaking on behalf of a, quite a few mothers. <laughs> Well-prepared mothers, I must add. <laughs> Or you can just ask Oma to take them out and, and, and ask her to, to uh, take her handbag. It, it more or less looks like what I've described. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Christine. And thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for inviting me, Marie. It's, it's, it's been lovely and I hope it's been constructive and that people will find it uh, uh, insightful and meaningful. Yes. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with someone you care about. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, Mariette Sneeman, 
for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.00.